from Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26. So please give your reverent attention to the reading of God's Word. Then when they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so the field was called in their own language a caldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. If you think back uh, momentarily to uh, the first century church, uh, and in particular uh, the time around the crucifixion, uh, I think we can well imagine that uh, the apostolic company had thought they had hitched their wagon to a falling star. Uh, Christ had been defeated, been killed, put to death. Uh, what compounds that, of course, is that one of his own uh, had uh, defected in incredible disloyalty. So, I mean, how could it be God and choose Judas? How does that work? If it was God, he would choose qualified men who would stay the course, persevere. Uh, so again, there's this aura surrounding uh, the immediacy of the crucifixion that uh, uh, Christ had failed. But we now know that uh, it was all according to divine plan and God's eternal purposes. 
And uh, this majestic presentation of Christ is found to a degree in our text this morning uh, that is uh, also uh, foundational uh, to their response and what they do. Uh, verses 12 to 14, uh, Christ is regathering his agents. And then verses 15 to 26, he reconstitutes uh, uh, them. Uh, and in both cases, he is majestically sovereign. Majestically sovereign in regathering them, reconstituting them. Uh, and one of the uh, immediate applications, of course, uh, in this is we watch their obedience to Christ in both of these uh, occasions. Uh, we, I think, well understand it's a result of the fact that He is so majestically sovereign. Uh, and what was true of them must be true of us as well. Uh, if you understand sovereignty of God, uh, the uh, response, of course, is obedience. Uh, well, let's begin with the crucifixion. Again, it was no failure. It was ordained and entirely necessary in effecting substitutionary atonement uh, and, of course, in gathering His people. Uh, Isaiah 53, 10 and 11, uh, God the Father says to God the Son, the great servant, uh, you will see your offspring. You will be satisfied. You will justify the many. It's an attestation. Crucifixion was ordained to secure incredible blessings, no failure whatsoever. He, uh, he justifies the many. All that He died for will be gathered. None will be lost. As well, we know from uh, his, uh, our Lord's repeated teachings in the New Testament, He would be crucified and on the third day rise again. Meaning that He was sovereign. Sovereign over what? death. I would commend to you this great reality that if uh, our Lord Jesus Christ is sovereign over death, He is the greatest force of all times to be dealt with. Uh, there is only one sovereign over death. There is only one sovereign over the grave, and that is Jesus Christ. There is only one who has defeated it, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and that here in this text becomes, I think, a unifying force uh, in the regathering of his disciples. Uh, and so uh, we know from our previous lesson that he regathers them and missions them uh, for worldwide uh, witness. Uh, we know in the rest of the book of Acts that they will obey. Why will they obey? Uh, because uh, he is sovereign over death. And uh, obedience is tied to the reality that he beat death. I know this seemingly perhaps is uh, commonplace to you, but uh, our, our own culture, I think, is corrupting uh, as we wander from this great truth. The church will automatically corrupt uh, as, uh, as it rejects uh, truths like this. Uh, I, I told an oft-repeated story in my own background. I was speaking with a friend uh, who was a vicar at a a well-known church in the neighborhood I live. He said, in my, uh, uh, in my denomination, uh, you can deny the resurrection and still be considered uh, a conservative. Well, in my denomination, if you uh, reject uh, the resurrection, you're not even a Christian. Uh, I don't get all that, but uh, again, the church is always corrupting, but not this church, not the church of Acts uh, chapter 1 in the regathering 
uh, of the people of God. And of course, they returned to Jerusalem from the place of the ascension, which was a very short journey. Uh, and this is essential because Jesus commanded them to go and to wait for the Spirit, verse 4, chapter 1. Uh, his accession to the throne as they watch him uh, ascend to heaven had to have been a galvanizing event. Uh, his resurrection. He commands, guess what? They go. How does that happen? I mean, uh, don't we oftentimes uh, uh, complain with the Lord? Uh, sometimes uh, leave the church maybe, I don't know, all types of various forms and shades and degrees of rebellion. He commands them to go to Jerusalem and they go. They don't say, well, you know, Lord, I've got, I've got to re, uh, rebalance my accounts and I've got some, I'll take care of this and that and all the things that we sometimes do. He commands, they go. And you know what it's tied to? The fact that He beat death. He's sovereign over death. The greatest force of all time to be reckoned with. If you can beat death, you're to be obeyed. And this point of obedience in our own church should not be lost on us. They gather in the upper room, which could have been the place of the Last Supper. I don't think we can be, uh, uh, be dogmatic. Uh, roll is uh, taken and there's now just a lever. Uh, as important... Uh, for us to deal with in light of His resurrection is they gather properly. Look at verse 14, first part of the verse. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with uh, uh, the mother of uh, Jesus and His brothers. Continuing steadfast in prayer in light of the mission. He has missioned them to go to the world and they're going to obey how does that happen? Uh, again, I would commend to you the great reality that is central to our faith and central to your faith. He beat death. And no one, no one does that but God Himself. Uh, this, uh, this is a, uh, their gathering, continued devotion is a compound verb in the Hebrew Bible has a very great stress in terms of the, of the construct of the verbal form on the continuity of their actions. Uh, you know, if you're like me, you start to pray, then you fall asleep. Then you wake up and you pray again. Then you fall asleep finally. They were devoted. They were rabid for prayer. Uh, the basic verb of this verbal form is, uh, uh, is used of, uh, used of Moses, uh, he was he was devoted, uh, even though he was he was uh, shoved out of Egypt. He was devoted to the kingdom of God. He was steadfast in his loyalty to the ways of God. How can that be? Well, he met the living God, in a burning bush. It wouldn't go out. That's how it can be. Deeply entrenched upon his mind ought to be for us in terms of the resurrected Christ. It will see you through, ladies and gentlemen, all of the vagaries of life. If our God can conquer death, and He has, uh, He's to be feared 
and he will provide everything you need. He will take care of you. Because if he can conquer death, he controls all of life. Uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the word here, continually devoted, is also used in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and of prayer. I love the phrase, to the apostles' teaching. They were loyal to the apostles' teaching. My oh my, I wonder. Our calling in light of the resurrected Christ. It's also used in Acts chapter 6 and verse 4. By the way, that's a definition of the church. One of the definitions. Uh, you can't do that on the golf course. Places of leisure, entertainment. You can't say a worshiping God in my garden. In terms of devotion to apostolic doctrine. Acts 6.4, we will devote ourselves to prayer. There was a controversy in the church. Apostles devote themselves to prayer. Uh, the, uh, the modifying uh, adverb... Verse 14 uh, is uh, they were of one mind. Literally one passion. How do you get 11 people? And really it's more than that. It's 120 to have one passion. How can that be? Well, let me tell you. Christ beat death. It ought to be true in our church. We ought to have one passion. There's lots of things we can disagree on, secondary issues. But there ought to be one controlling passion for the majesty of Jesus Christ. If you let anything else interdict, uh, you ought to reconnect with uh, the majesty of the resurrected Savior. Uh, by the way, this word is used of, uh, of those who rush upon Stephen to kill him. They, they were one passion because they hated the truth and what Stephen stood for. We should be just the opposite. One passion. That our hearts ought to beat for the glory of Christ. Because what it means to us that He defeated death. Uh, here it speaks to unanimity and common purpose. Uh, uh, controlling action of their prayer. The content of the prayer is not specified. Uh, I suspect it has something to do with their missioning in uh, verse 8 and the promise of the Spirit. Uh, and again, there's only one thing that could have caused their passion and their unity and their devotion to prayer. Resurrection. Let's, let's look at a corollary text in Acts chapter, uh, pardon me, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18. Uh, the context in this is John drops to the feet of Christ in worship. Uh, given the majesty, uh, falls, falls in worship. Uh, our Savior identifies Himself. Uh, Revelation uh, chapter 1 and verse 18. Uh, and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. That's what uh, drops John uh, to worship. I was dead, and now I'm alive forevermore. 
the resurrected Christ. Here there's an additional description. Uh, don't have time to explore it to its fully, but I have the keys of death and hell. My friend, that is a force to be reckoned with. That he controls death and hell. That's our Savior. That is our Savior. And that's why we should uh, be like the apostolic company, devoted in one passion for Jesus Christ. Because he is sovereign over death and he controls entrance into hell. We should be given to obedience. We should have the same controlling passion. Uh, our own uh, mission uh, as a outworking of uh, Acts chapter 1 verse 8 uh, should drive us to prayer. And our own unity should be given to the passion of the majesty of Jesus Christ. There's, uh, there, there, there's an application of this uh, really very beautiful internal to this, this text. Uh, 120 are gathered. Can you imagine gathering 120 people and giving to them a controlling passion in life? Why, I suspect if we were to do that on our neighborhoods, our streets, at our city council meetings, obviously in national government, You'd have a revolt on your hands. How can 120 people be gathered in a unanimity of controlling passion and purpose but for the resurrected Christ? The world rejects that. We accept it. It should drive us to unity. Think of it. 120 people. To recover the majesty of the sovereignty of our Lord over death and hell and life everlasting. Drive us to worship and obedience uh, because He's the Sovereign. It's very interesting here that uh, uh, Luke mentions uh, uh, Mary and uh, the brothers, the physical brothers of Jesus. Uh, we know from texts like John 7-5 that uh, there was a time in their life that they didn't believe. In fact, I think they thought their brother Jesus was a, was a little weird. There's an occasion where they seek Audience with him, and he's, he says, uh, these are my mothers and my brothers, those who are obeying the Word of God. Those who are following the Word of God. But of course, they come to faith. How do they come to faith? The resurrected Christ. By the way, if you're not a Christian, if you haven't dealt with the resurrected Christ, it's the most compelling person and event of all time. Bar none. And his brothers who once did not believe are now believers and are now disciples. An immediate cause. Resurrected Christ. And they're regathered in obedience. And now in verses 15 to 26, uh, the Sovereign Lord will reconstitute the twelve. Uh, and again, as a prelude to this, I, I just ask for you to imagine for a moment. Imagine the defection, the perfidy, and the disloyalty of Judas. What do you think the apostles thought? Man, 
Christ really messed up on that one. How in the world could he have chosen Judas? You've got to be kidding me. Well, I guess it just doesn't work. Well, Peter's going to take the stand and tell us that even the selection of Judas was by divine sovereignty and providence. How could it be any other way? That the very internal opposition within his own apostolic company was entirely providential. And the point of this is that God does not compete with evil. He doesn't compete with anything. He rules over it. He is sovereign over it. And He uses it for His glory. Which is exactly what Peter is about to tell us. Now I would remind you uh, that that is a compelling fact. If you're sovereign even over your opposition, you are a force to be reckoned with. First in verses 16 and 17, Peter says the Scriptures to be fulfilled. The Scriptures had to be fulfilled. The immediate context is the defection of Judas and reconstituting the twelve. Uh, the controlling verb is literally, it was necessary. The defection of Judas was a necessary event for Scripture to be fulfilled. And the necessity of us, for of course, is that God's Word cannot fail. Uh, again, if God is competing with evil, He's not God. He may be Superman, He may be a great power, but He's not God. And God competes with no one and nothing. You and I do. We, we compete with evil. We fight with it. We struggle it. Uh, sometimes we succumb to it. Uh, it's a titanic struggle, but not so with uh, our majestic Savior. And of course, He will rescue us uh, as His sons and daughters from it all. And the Word of God cannot fail. Uh, in other words, Judas was ordained. This is a, a signature theme of this entire book. We're going to watch the Word of God run to and fro. And wherever it goes, it's going to produce results. The kingdom will advance. Uh, and God foretold it all. Uh, the crucifixion, the scattering, even Jesus, and of course, uh, the success of the Word of God. Uh, there's a uh, there's an indirect allusion here to uh, uh, John chapter uh, 13 uh, and verse 18, uh, referencing, I think, uh, the Scriptures. Uh, John chapter 13 in uh, verse 18. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the Scriptures may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread is lifted up his heel against me. Uh, the fulfilling of Scripture. Uh, the very perfidy and disloyalty of Judas uh, was set in motion by the sovereignty of God. Uh, the allusion here uh, in John 13.18 is to, to Psalm uh, 41.9. Uh, again, very quickly, uh, he who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Uh, remember, uh, they were partaking of, uh, uh, of uh, the Passover uh, when uh, Judas, when Christ sends Judas out to effect the betrayal. Uh, the controlling uh, context of uh, Psalm 41.9 is the rebellion of Absalom 
and the defection of Ahithophel. Not a chance event. Uh, Ahithophel uh, partook of David's hospitality and friendship, and in the Old Testament, these were sacred events. Uh, yet Ahithophel defected. He became a traitor. And by the way, it cost him dearly, incredibly. Uh, David in 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 31, verse 34, when he is informed that Ahithophel has uh, defected, uh, prays, God uh, nullify the counsel of Ahithophel. Ahithophel in many occasions knew David better than David knew himself. He was an incredibly wise counselor. And David understood what it meant for Ahithophel to go to the other side, the dark side. He prays and God resurrects a means uh, that uh, David implants uh, in the, uh, the counsel of the rebellion to nullify uh, the counsel of Ahithophel. If you have your Old Testament, 2 Samuel 17 in uh, verse 14. Uh, then Absalom, all the men of Israel said, the council of Hushai, the archite, this was uh, David's plant, uh, is better than the council of Ahithophel. So there's a meeting of the minds and uh, uh, the council of Ahithophel is rejected. Should have been accepted. His counsel was go attack David now. Waste no time. Don't give him time to gather his forces, to unify his forces, to counterattack. Set upon him now. The counsel of Ahithophel was wise counsel. It's rejected. How is that so? How can that be? Well, notice what the text reads. For the Lord had ordained to thwart the counsel of Ahithophel. God ordained it to be so. God ordained Ahithophel, his counsel to be rejected. How can that be? Because God is sovereign even over the opposition. The other reason, I think, for drawing that Old Testament context into the defection of Judas is, what does Ahithophel do? Verse 23, now when Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey, he arose, he went to his home, to his city, he set his house in order, and he hung himself. Which is exactly what Judas will do. Uh, this is another theme of this book, but certainly prevalent here, that Jesus is sovereign over the opposition. And it is swept aside and destroyed. It cannot stand. Nothing will get in the way of the kingdom of God. Now there's all types of appearances to the contrary. I understand that. That's the point of this text. But ultimately, if God is sovereign, He's sovereign over the opposition. His kingdom will win. It can't do anything but win because He's the sovereign over death and all opposition. Let's look at this uh, from the Gospel of John. Uh, John uh, chapter 6. Uh, in the 70th verse. Did I myself not choose you, the twelve? Jesus chose Judas, ladies and gentlemen. Do His work. Chose Him. 
And yet one of you is the devil. He chose the devil. He chose one who would do the work of the devil. How can that be? Because he's sovereign over it all. It's not to minimize his responsibility. Uh, because uh, Ahithophel and Judas pay an incredible price. Better that that man had not been born, the Bible tells us. But Jesus was sovereign even over the choice. Uh, by the way, you and I cannot do that. Only Jesus can and does because of who he is. John chapter 17, our Lord's high priestly prayer. He's praying for his uh, disciples. While I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name, which thou hast given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. He never had an intention to keep Judas in the fulfillment of the Scriptures. Incredible. The majesty of our Lord's sovereignty over His own opposition is incredible to me, but it should drive us all to obedience in worship and praise and adoration. Because whoever is sovereign, even over their opposition, is one so majestic as to be obeyed. Uh, Peter then supplements the account of Matthew 27, 5. Judas uh, takes 30 pieces of silver and threw it into the sanctuary. He went away. He hanged himself, just like Ahithophel. Fulfillment of Scripture. Peter explains that indirectly the transaction was affected by Judas, but carried out by the Sanhedrin. At some point in the decomposition of his body, became bloated. Either the rope or a limb broke from the tree. His body was smashed and broke open. Reminding us of a terrible end uh, to those uh, who go to the dark side. Uh, secondly here, uh, to further ratify that our Lord is sovereign over the opposition, Peter quotes two psalms in verse 20. Brings them together. Uh, again, Acts chapter 1, verse 20. For it is written in the book of the Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, and let no man dwell in it, and his office let another man take. He's quoting Psalm 69, 25, and Psalm 109, verse 8. Uh, Psalm 16, well, both Psalms are Davidic Psalms. In both cases, David is undergoing persecution. It's very telling, that context. Uh, David's undergoing persecution. Christ is inaugurating the end time persecution, but is sovereign over it. Uh, the context of the citations is an imprecation uh, and curse. Uh, where David is calling down curses upon his enemies. Uh, both psalms are lament psalms. Uh, very interesting. Uh, turn, if you would, in Psalm 109. I uh, uh, want to read uh, how sharp the curse is that David calls upon his enemies. It's not something you and I can do, but David could do, and Christ will ultimately affect the curse on all who are not His. And the sharpness should drive us all to the worship of God who has been saved. Psalm 109, verses, verses 9 to 13. Let His children be fatherless, 
his wife a widow. Let his children wander about and beg, and let them seek sustenance far from their ruined homes. Let the creditor seize all he has, and let strangers plunder the product of his labor. Let there be none to extend loving kindness to him, nor any to be gracious to his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off. In a following generation, let their name be blotted out. Now again, this is an Old Testament imprecation. We can't pray that way in the New Testament. But we're to love our enemies. Uh, but uh, the greater point is our Lord is sovereign over it all. And a great curse will fall upon the heads of all who reject Jesus Christ. Uh, the traitors will come to contemptuous ends. Utter ruin. And David's enemies are a type of Judas. The point of the, of the citations from the Psalter is that typology is indirect prophetic fulfillment. Uh, and it's more intense fulfillment, but it's fulfillment nonetheless. In other words, Judas is the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic enemies of Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. But the greater point is prophetic fulfillment. It had to be that way. Judas had to defect to fulfill the Scriptures. God's Scriptures. God's Word. Meaning He is sovereign even over defections. Incredible sovereignty. The point of the defection is that Judas was foretold. It created a vacancy also foretold. And now it must be filled. The theology of this is incredible for the Christian you and I will face the enemies of the church all of our lives. And God is sovereign over them. At some point, it will interdict your, your life in different ways. Think about, for example, if you wanted to be a PhD in biology. How can you get by the committees when they find out you reject evolution? That they would select you? Well, God is sovereign even over the opposition. It's a way of working and we trust His sovereignty over every event of our life from birth to death. The majesty of God. Sovereign over the enemies of the church. And in God's world, There are no mistakes. In His sovereignty, there are no detours. There are no mulligans. There are no aberrations or needed postponements to the eternal decrees of God. And that's one of the reasons we worship Him. We should worship Him in purity, devotion, in passionate devotion of one accord. It's essential theology for the church in prosecuting our mission. And now let's look at the sovereignty of Christ in reconstituting the twelve. I believe the reconstitution is, a critical, is critical from Old Testament biblical theology. There were twelve tribes. There are twelve apostles. It's going to reconstitute as a reminder that the end time Israel has been stood up. Christ is the end time Israel. 
and he has 12, if you will, tribes. Peter describes the qualification of the apostle, witness of the ministry and resurrection. Two men are offered as candidates. But notice verse 21. It is therefore necessary, necessity, biblical necessity, providential necessity, necessity from the sovereignty of God, resurrection, control of the opposition, and now to reconstitute. Relates to the indirect fulfillment again of the Psalter. They prayed uh, the content of uh, the prayers at verse 24. Thou Lord who knowest the hearts of all men. Show which one of these two thou hast chosen. Reference of course is to God the Father. By the way, that in and of itself is an attestation of the sovereignty of God. He knows the hearts of all men. That's why we should be given to a purity devotion. That's why we turn away from thoughts of evil, magazines of evil, television shows of evil, because he knows the hearts of all men. This comes from, of course, as you know, 1 Samuel 16, 7. Prophets to go to elective new king of Israel. He says, you know, don't, don't pick him because of his stature, his good looks. Don't pick, pick him because he appears to be a mighty warrior. Pick him because he's humble. Because God examines the heart. I'm just telling you the reality of this text. Uh, He who governs the heart is sovereign. He sees the heart because he's sovereign. It ought to, again, drive us in passionate love for him that he's given us new hearts, which only a sovereign God can do. It's very interesting. Uh, You know the one you've chosen. Affect it. The word for chosen is the doctrine of election. Ephesians, used in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. He chose. He picked according to the sovereign good pleasure of His will. The driving point of this text, sovereignty over death, sovereignty over opposition, sovereignty and reconstitution. If you're a Christian, you've been reconstituted uh, by the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Greatest force of all time. The application is to deal with Him properly. Obey Him. Follow Him. Serve Him. The prayer, therefore, is for the certainty of the divine decree. And so they cast lots. A number of commentators, I think, here bring very good wisdom to this casting of lots. This is the last time we read of this, which perhaps is related to the outpouring of the Spirit that will occur uh, in, in Acts 2. Uh, you really shouldn't cast lots to uh, help you make decisions. It's an Old Testament way of discerning the will of God. It's different in this uh, new era that we are in. Uh, but the lot falls to Matthias. It's the last time we read of him, by the way. Uh, tradition is that he uh, became a witness for Jesus Christ and died a martyr. Fitting in for an apostle. Uh, But again, this too is the fulfillment of Scripture. Verse 26. They drew lots and the lot fell to Matthias. 
turn with me, if you would, to Proverbs. The theology comes from the Proverbs. Proverbs 16.33 A lot is cast into the lap. Probably the rolling of stones, the right stone falls out. Indicating Matthias. Notice what the parallel line says. But it's every decision is from the Lord. There's no chance. No maybes. Sovereignty of God, the province of God. Uh, no, no contingency. No luck. By the way, as you know, pretty strong feelings about that word. You should not, you should not use that word. Because there is no such thing as luck. There's physics. There's heat and there's motion. Speed and time. God governs all of that. Not luck. It's a good way to witness to non-Christians. We don't believe in luck. We believe in the sovereignty and the providence of controlling God. Thank God we serve Him who's to be dealt with. And here it fell, the lot falls to the right man. He was numbered among the eleven. Notice, uh, notice uh, there's a wrong man whose place has now been taken. I want to make some application of this. Verse 25. To occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Be very careful about turning aside. Because if you turn away from God, uh, you will go to your own place and it won't be God's. And your own place will be a place of utter ruin. That's the point of the life of Judas. Better that that man had never been born. Be very careful about turning away from the way of God. I know and understand we get caught up in foolishness sometimes, our emotions, our passions. Well, I don't need to go to church. It's a bad place. Phil Bowersocks is there. Who could, who could put up with him? Maybe there's another church. I mean, I don't know. Be very careful turning away. So I know so many people just constantly traveling, constantly looking, Never, ever able to discern the truth. Find a place. Connect. Engage. Get involved. To have one passion for Jesus Christ. Radically important. Judas did not see it to be important. He went to his own place. In other words, not God's place. And he was totally ruined. The description of this that... uh, uh, John gives us the uh, book of the Revelation. Two occasions. Revelation 13, 8 and 17, 8. Those who worship the beast whose names have not been written in the book of life in the foundation of the world. They will worship the beast. And I'm just simply telling you that in Judah's case, like in so many cases, It comes in very small degrees. 
centimeters, eventually a few inches, then a few feet, then a few yards. It always starts slowly. Uh, one of my favorite sayings from a former pastor, more tires go flat from slow leaks than blowouts. It always starts slow. It started slow in the heart of Judas. What should correct your heart? Our Lord's sovereignty over death. His sovereignty over the opposition. And His sovereignty over the reconstitution of His people. These are all good reasons to obey Him. To keep a heart pure. And one passion for the great Savior.